This podcast is brought to you by the Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo, shipping products as easy as sending emails. This Lodestar podcast special will tackle the biggest challenges affecting global ocean supply chains. We'll explore when the container shipping pricing madness might end, what needs to change to unblock global trade, and with regulators now turning their gaze on box shipping, we ask if carriers truly appreciate the terrible optics presenting record profits while customers are suffering woeful service and breathtaking surcharges. We'll hear from a who's who of shipping. Representing carriers, we have the World Shipping Council's John Butler and Soren Toft, CEO of Mediterranean Shipping Company. We'll also hear from Kelvin Leung, the Asia-Pacific CEO of DHL Global Forwarding, the National Retail Federation's John Gold, Jeffrey's analyst Randy Givens, the Wall Street Journal's Paul Page, Federal Maritime Commission Chairman Daniel Maffey, Accenture's Sarah Banks, and Vespucci Maritime's Lars Jensen. You can rearrange the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're still playing a zero-sum game. So if you make a regulatory approach to favor some shippers, those shippers will be happy. But then you will have other shippers that are going to be left behind. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Now, quickly before we get started, if you would like to receive future episodes of the Lodestar podcast straight to your inbox, please sign up at the lodestar.com forward slash podcast. There are many statistics that tell the story of where we all are now in the supply chain business, but here are just a few. Pricing. On the Baltic Exchange FBX index, spot rates for 40-foot containers moving from China to the North American West Coast were averaging almost $20,000 per FEU in the final week of September. To the East Coast, they were $22,000 and into North Europe, from China to East Asia, spot rates were almost $15,000, up over 500% compared to a year ago. Shippers are also coping with countless surcharges, including detention and demorage charges that are attracting legal actions. At the same time, the leading carriers are expected to rack up net profits of over $100 billion this year. Scheduled reliability in August, meanwhile, dropped to an all-time low of 33.6%, according to Sea Intelligence. Perhaps the most visible sign of the shipping crunch was the queue of 70 container ships off the coast of Long Beach and Los Angeles terminals at the end of September with some vessels stuck in queues for over three weeks waiting to unload. Vessels value report that over 400 container ships were stuck in queues worldwide last month, a situation that was worsening with every passing day in September. But if you really want to know what impact this ocean shipping logjam is having on business and the global economy, let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Or in this case, let's hear it from Soren Toft, CEO of MSC, the world's second biggest carrier after Maersk. Around two-thirds of around 7,000 company earning calls suddenly had supply chains in their conversation. This was a study done by Standard & Poor's, and I think it must be a world record that the industry that we operate, serving a lot of customers, suddenly get this much attention. Toft was addressing the IMO in September when he said that. He went on to remind delegates that container shipping plays a vital part in global trade, which of course is true. 
although he seemed to miss the point that those supply chain warnings in so many financial reports were made because trade on many lanes is close to breakdown or unaffordable, while at the same time, carriers are making those staggering profits. Now, we'll return to those optics a little later, but let me just reference the previous episode of the Lodestar podcast when we heard from the Global Shippers Forum how peak season was threatening catastrophe for many shippers. John Gold, Vice President of Supply Chain and Customs Policy at the National Retail Federation, doubled down on that point. He told the Lodestar that disruptions at sea had percolated across US logistics networks. The supply chain has essentially been stretched from end to end. As we continue to see demand for not just consumer products, but inputs for production that far outpace the available supply of goods, equipment, available space, and then poor congestion issues we're facing here with available chassis, drivers, longshore workers, warehouse workers, rail. Every form of retail has been impacted from the small up to the large big box uh, retailers, especially as we now enter the all-important peak shipping season for the holiday season uh, at the end of the year. Many retailers have tried to uh, shift uh, many are brought product in earlier than they normally would in order to try and avoid some of the disruptions that they're facing. Many have looked at alternate ports, uh, looked at air versus ocean. Many have also looked at chartering vessels or space on vessels, but even those members still face issues of poor congestion once the vessel arrives here in the United States. Before we look at when container shipping might return to something more normal, let's just recap the journey. And who better to explain this than someone many of you will know, Lars Jensen, the CEO of Vespucci Maritime, and one of the most respected shipping analysts out there. I asked him how we got to the current impasse. One word, COVID. Uh, Adding a few more words on top of that, one domino toppling the next, adding even more words onto it, a state in the industry where there has not been sufficiently much care or thought over the past couple of decades given to resilience in the supply chain. Initially, you had China shutting down and everybody kind of panicked. Uh, China was not shut down for very much. Trade picked up again. Then the rest of the world shut down and the panic was even greater. And it was kind of, well, this is doom and gloom for everyone. In the midst of that initial panic, the first thing to really notice is the container lines acted extremely responsibly given the situation. Given that demand dropped out from under them, which it did, it was down 20 to 30% in most trade lanes virtually overnight, they removed capacity matching that demand decline. This is a behavior we have not seen from them before. They were extremely inept at doing that when the financial crisis hit. This time, it was picture perfect. So did that fix the market? Of course it didn't. Demand was still down, but it prevented a collapse in freight rates. Mind you, rates also did not increase at this point. They just flatlined. That all looked kind of okay for a couple of months, given the situation the world was in. Then the problems came because in rapid succession, a number of things happened at the same time. U.S. consumers, specifically U.S. consumers, decided that instead of being bored at home, they would just buy everything in sight on their computer. And that started a huge boom in import demand, a boom we still see today. When you have a huge import boom, obviously you need a lot of empty containers in especially China to put the goods into. 
But this happened at the same time where there are no empty containers coming back to China because all of those ships that were blanked months prior because there was no demand, well, since they were blanked, obviously they're not returning with empties when they never sailed in the first place. So now China is running out of empty containers. That causes freight rates to go up rapidly. The next thing that happens is because the initial shortage was not shortage of vessel capacity, it was shortage of containers. This means that it's not just the US trade that get hit. Because if I only got one empty container left in China, who am I going to give it to? The US importer, the German importer, the Australian guy? Obviously, I'm going to give it to the one who pays the most. So that set the stage for an even more rapid increase in freight rates. Coming towards the end of the year, you continue to see a demand boom into the US. You're putting more ships into cater for this. So now you've got a massive armada of ships here in late 2020 heading into especially US West Coast. At the same time, where a lot of the port workers contract COVID, causing this pileup we had in the beginning of the year. Now, when you have a pileup of vessels, the next problem is a vessel waiting in line is a vessel that cannot move cargo. So effectively, you are removing capacity from the market. This grows out of all proportion in January. So suddenly now there is a shortage of vessels throughout the world. The number of vessels is fine, but they're just tied up in queues. The hope was that after Chinese New Year and the normal slump, we could start to clear up this mess. And to some degree, this mess did slowly begin to abate after Chinese New Year. Then in rapid succession, first there was a tiny vessel that got stuck in the Suez Canal, which caused untold problems. When that was cleared out, we hadn't even fixed the ripples. Yantan closes down for a month. When that one opens, it doesn't take long. Then one of the terminals in Ningbo shuts down. At the same time, the demand boom in the US continues unabated. So coming into peak season, everyone and his brother that can lay their hands on a ship dispatches that to the Trans-Pacific, which for a brief period is great for all the shippers because they are screaming bloody murder if they can't get a vessel to load their cargo on. All the cargo gets loaded in Asia and lo and behold, two to three weeks later, all this cargo arrives at the same time off the California coastline. But neither the ports nor the amount of trucks and chassis and rail have magically increased over just a few months. So now we're in the debacle we're in. So effectively, the situation was bad from a global perspective, January, February. It slowly got better from March until around June. Then it got worse. And right now, it's escalating and getting worse rapidly. Delivery days have forced supply chain strategy changes on many shippers, prompting some to order more than they might need for fear of running out of inventory. Essentially, just in time has become just in case. Over to Sarah Banks, Global Head of Freight and Logistics at Accenture. I think there is an acceptance at the moment within the, the shipper community and the importers to hold inventory. I don't think there is a notion now that that's not a good thing. And, you know, it challenges some of the notions as well around, you know, older inventory strategies and just in time. So I do think that that plays into it. I think until we start seeing more stabilization around when I can get products shipped and when I can get them into my hands because the lead times have actually increased dramatically, I think that we will see, you could call it a panic or uh, more of just a hedging your bets uh, with a more conservative stance until things really 
start cleaning out. We start seeing more stabilized views on container shipping schedules, like no more blank sailings, no more huge port congestion. I think that those things have to be true until you see shippers actually deciding that they can maybe go back to more relaxed supply chain strategies. For those taking a just-in-case approach to logistics right now, it's hard to argue against the strategy. Factory shutdowns in China on presidential order and a bid to cut emissions from coal-fired power stations were threatening to further disrupt exports in late September. And if history is any guide, more closures could follow. Back in 2008, ahead of the Beijing Olympics, factory closures were widespread around the city and surrounding areas. Beijing hosts the 2022 Winter Olympics from the 4th of February to the 20th of February. Chinese New Year starts at the beginning of the same month. There is every chance that spikes in demand before and after the Games and Lunar Holidays could throw schedules into further disarray. Factories could be shut down long before February if President Xi decides to show the world during the Olympics and perhaps world leaders meeting at COP26 in Glasgow in November that China is serious on cutting emissions. The upshot could be even longer delivery times from Asia, encouraging yet more orders in October and November by shippers looking to build up inventory. So a Chinese New Year seems unlikely to help container shipping make a soft landing. When does? This is where our analysts and experts have very different views. Kelvin Leung is the Asia-Pacific CEO of DHL Global Forwarding. I think personally, a good portion of next year, if not the entire of next year, uh, I don't think the situation will change very much, given that some of the constraints are infrastructural. Um, I describe about the seaport and so on and so forth. Now, of course, things may in some areas get better next year. Case in point, the supply of containers is getting more. The major manufacturers of our containers, they are churning out, I think in one count, we are talking about roughly 5 million uh, containers, new containers into the circulation globally. Yeah. So that is helping somehow, not entirely resolving the issues. Now, in terms of the supply of capacity, I believe based on what we have calculated, some of the new vessels will only come into the picture earliest in the first quarter of 2023, mm-hmm. not next year. So that means that some of the constraints, bottlenecks, will be addressed partially next year. Some of them will remain a challenge. My advice to the customers is that things may ease somehow versus now, but it won't get back to the normal yet next year. And they should continue to prepare for alternative solutions, better planning on the supply chain, better planning in terms of the production schedules, and better forecasting in terms of the demand side of the end consumers so that you know they can spread around um, among different options of the supply chains to mitigate the risks they are exposed to today. Throughout all this, most liner and container executives have done what they generally do, which is keep a very low profile. The more outgoing have suggested that it might take a, a major drop-off in demand to sort out the global logistics system. 
The head of Japanese carrier MOL took the unprecedented step in late September of saying market economics might not be enough to sort out supply chains next year and government intervention might be needed. For his part, MSC Sorrentoff told the IMO that he hopes service levels and freight rates could improve at some point next year. But what we are seeing is, of course, that our freight rates are elevated. It's causing a lot of agony with our customers because not only are the, are the prices higher, but perhaps more importantly, the service levels are poorer. And right now, everybody is waiting and, and asking the fundamental question, when will things change? Um, despite being the CEO of, of, of this business, I don't have the perfect crystal ball, but I would say during the next 12 months, we would expect to see some normalization and cool down. There are not many places we can look historically in shipping for comparisons to where container shipping markets are right now. The closest is perhaps dry bulk shipping, which had an amazing rally from 2004 into 2009. Much of that bull market was driven by Chinese demand for imported commodities after WTO entry and ahead of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. This market, as Randy Givens, Senior VP for Equity Research at Jefferies explained, was also fired by limited vessel capacity growth. The supply growth in the dry bulk market was very low. There was not many vessels on order, not many vessels being delivered in 2004, 5, 6, 7. As a result, you had multiple years of very strong rates. And when I say very strong, I'm talking $200,000 a day for a cape size, right? It was just mind-boggling levels. And, and it really was sustained for, like I said, four or five years. And then, obviously, it, it had a big crash in 2009. And three real reasons led up to that crash. First is the Olympics were over. China slowed down um, their, their big push on demand growth and on infrastructure spending and on these other things. So they really pulled forward a lot of demand into 2005, 6, 7, 8, that it just wasn't there in 2009 and 10. Secondly, obviously, the global financial crisis, right? And that slowed down economies around the world. 2009 was a massive pullback in GDP and in economic contraction. So that clearly hurt dry bulk trade and anything global trade at that. And then lastly, the fleet side, the order book ballooned to 65% of the fleet in 2009, right? So people were ordering so many ships you know, again, I guess just thinking this is never going to end. Let's just buy as many ships as we can. And you had an incredible amount of new shipyard capacity being built in South Korea, in China, in Japan. So they were really just taking orders for anyone who wanted to place an order. So again, that, that shipyard uh, capacity ballooned and the order book ballooned. And guess what? Those vessels started getting delivered into a very weak demand market in 2009, 10, 11, 12, right? So you had multiple years of very weak rates, right? So it was a, a huge crash. And part of it, we can put the crash into context. Rates in 2010, even, were pretty good. But at 20,000 a day, that's 10% of 200,000 a day. So that 90% fall in a very rapid period of time looked and was uh, pretty dramatic. But while in the dry bulk market supply had ballooned before the crash, for now there isn't really a sort of Damocles hanging over the container shipping market's head. Back to Randy. 
on the container ships and the fleet. There has been a lot of ordering, right? The order book was only around 7 or 8% in September of 2020, a little over a year ago. Now the order book has grown to about 21%. The vast majority of those orders were placed, you know, like I said, from October to May, really, of this year and into the summer. So that means they're not getting delivered for at least two, if not three years. So a lot of that order book is going to get delivered late 2023, throughout 2024, throughout 2025. So it's not going to be this imminent massive fleet growth in the next two years, at least, and until late 23. So that's one side of it. Secondly, is the demand picture, right? We do see some reasons that demand has been elevated with all the stimulus checks, with all of the switch of spending from goods to, from services to goods. You're no longer going out to eat as much or going to sporting events or concerts or traveling. So you're spending all your money on appliances and home goods and you know e-commerce products, right? Um, so that has certainly been the trend. And that trend is likely slowly going to head back to some services as economies reopen and uh, the world kind of uh, gets back to quote unquote normal. But as I mentioned earlier, the inventory levels from retailers and distributors remain very low. So there's going to be an, an ongoing um, demand uplift and elevated demand for containerized goods. So putting it all together, yes, rates are going to pull back from these levels. Even the container ship uh, owners, the lessors, those rates are going to fall. Again, I don't think that's happening in 2021, but certainly at some point in 2022. But I do not see a you know 90% correction like we saw in dry bulk in 2008-9 uh, and into 2010. But I do see a 20 to 30% correction. But even at those levels, rates would be very strong for both the liners and the container ship owner lessors. And as you mentioned, I think a, a few things are at work here. One is the container liner industry has a lot more discipline. We saw that back in May, uh, April and May of last year when they were blank sailings and cargo cancellations. So they, the very fragmented liner industry has become very consolidated with the three large alliances. So with that, the, they should have a lot more capacity discipline and, and quote unquote pricing power to keep rates elevated. So that is one big component of the industry. And secondly, you know, you, you haven't really seen a massive uh, supply response. Like I said, the order book has gone up to 21%, but it's not 40, 50, 60%. And it's spread out over three or four years. And a lot of it is replacement tonnage. 23% of the fleet is already over 15 years of age, 8% is over 20 years of age. So a lot of those vessels have to be scrapped and replaced in the coming years. So part of that, you know, 21% order book to fleet ratio is for replacement of older tonnage. So for all those reasons, we expect a softer landing here in the coming years. Clearly rates can't stay here forever, but the two questions are, when do they turn and how quickly do they turn? So that's something that, you know, our expectation is first quarter of 2022 in terms of timing and then in terms of degree, probably 20 to 30 percent downside. Some people say, well, once congestion slows, rates are going to plummet. 
Well, it takes a long time for that congestion uh, to be reduced. And secondly, once congestion starts being reduced, vessel speeds are going to start slowing down. So that's one thing. Secondly, yes, demand is going to switch from goods back to services, but that is a gradual shift. Uh, it's not going to be overnight. And then third, in terms of the regulatory uh, risk, you know, you could certainly see, and we've already seen the Biden administration looking at kind of D&D charges and these other things, but I don't know how, how much can they really pressure liner companies in a in a very competitive still market to pull down rates, right? I, I just don't see a ton of regulatory risk there. But some regulatory risk there definitely is, as Lodestar news editor Nick Savides has been reporting. Of course, the obvious one is the Ocean Shipping Reform Act 2021, which is going through Congress at the moment. But it may take some time before that comes into effect. And of course, the FMC, the Federal Maritime Commission in the US, also met with their counterparts from China and Europe to have a discussion, which they do biannually on the container shipping industry. Uh, After that meeting, I had some communication with the uh, European Commission, and they have been asked by the shippers to bring forward their review of the block exemption, uh, consortium block exemption which is due to start in the spring of 2022, but they want to bring it forward to this year. It would normally start two years before um, the end of the block exemption, but there was only a four-year period this time, not five-year period, because there was quite a lot of opposition from shippers in 2020 when it was renewed last. That regulatory risk outlined by Nick is not diminished by the terrible optics for the container shipping industry right now. I spoke to an old colleague of mine and one of our industry's foremost journalists, the Wall Street Journal's Paul Page, editor of the WSJ Logistics Report. He put the conundrum facing carriers into perspective. You know, shipping companies generally have tried to operate a bit under the radar screen where they've tried to do their business while not getting too much attention. That is getting regulators attention. And so now regulators are noticing. And that's obviously a, a, a troublesome development uh, on a lot of levels, on the way they operate and, and price their business, on the consolidation antitrust issues, and also on the environmental issues. They sort of have tried to be everywhere in many ways while being nowhere specifically and tried to benefit from that. I remember talking, this this must be 25 years ago, with someone I was trying to explain the transportation industry and um, and, and what they were doing. And I said that they want to do all of the things that they can up to the point where they would call new regulation upon themselves. And I, and I think that remained the case to a large extent. The last thing they want is regulation. And frankly, the last thing regulators in Washington, or I think anywhere in London or, or anywhere else, want to do is to try to be more active in regulating the shipping industry. I, I don't think anyone relishes that prospect. So I think that the shipping industry faces a challenge. I don't think the Federal Maritime Commission, I don't think members of Congress want to get involved in the nitty-gritty day-to-day operations or the nitty-gritty contract pricing and all of the, those things. And it's it's going to be up to the shipping industry to um, help them do nothing, if I can speak <laughs> for the lobbyists. You know, and I, I'm not sure that, that shipping uh, the shipping customers really want want regulators involved either. Ultimately, I, I know that there's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of talk about the, the block exemption in the EU and all those things. But I think ultimately, a 
clearly, you know, shippers and customers would like government's hands out of their businesses. It's going to be up to the shipping companies to make that work. Representing carriers, World Shipping Council President and CEO John Butler told the Lodestar's Nick Savides that there was no collusion between lines on pricing. In fact, according to Mr Butler, the difficulties experienced by the shipping industry are a result of an unprecedented surge in demand in the US and elsewhere, and also the disruption caused by the global pandemic. I don't have enough information to accept your assumption that all the lines have similar rates. I mean, you know the market, you know how it works, and you know that, first of all, they're contract rates that move the bulk of the cargo. And those, you know, by public reporting, those have gone up, but nowhere near the headline rates that you see from the spot market. And, you know, I think if you probably look at those rates, everybody looks at averages, but Mm -hmm. if you had access to that data, I expect what you would see is pretty broad fluctuations and still a lot of competition amongst, amongst lines for cargo. The other thing is that in terms of how the market is operating. Take a look, for example, in, in the Trans-Pacific. So you've seen this tremendous surge in, in demand for transportation, right? Yes. And as you would expect, you've seen price increases associated with that. But the other thing that you've seen is a tremendous increase in capacity being put into the trade to the point where the land side infrastructure simply can't keep up right? Those are all indications of a market that's responding, as you would expect a market to, responding to the, the signals that are being sent from the, from the demand side. Butler went on to say he regarded some of the policies included in the Ocean Ship and Reform Act as born out of frustration and anger from shippers. I would say that some of the proposals in the House bill would be horrible transportation policy and horrible trade policy. If you look at some of the things that have been proposed, there is a provision, for example, that would make the ocean carrier responsible for making sure that every player in the supply chain had adequate capacity and equipment to move the cargo. Ocean carriers don't control truckers. Ocean carriers don't control railroads. Ocean carriers don't control the warehouses that are operated by our customers. So you see a provision like that, and you can certainly detect, if you will, the frustration and anger behind the proposal. And our members understand that frustration because we're jammed up as well, right? Many of our member CEOs have said publicly, we're not happy with the level of service that we're able to provide in these conditions. And ocean carriers are doing everything they can in order to improve those conditions. But if you've got ships stacked up outside of LA Long Beach that can't even get into the berth, right? That's an indication that the bottleneck is in front of those ships, not caused by those ships. And so then you have a provision in this proposed legislation that would put the onus for the entire supply chain congestion on the carrier. Well, maybe that makes some people feel better, but if you enact that provision, it's impossible to carry out because the carriers simply don't control the whole supply chain. And it's a whole of supply chain problem. So it's probably a violation of due process, but set that aside, it won't work. It won't make any difference. When challenged about spiraling detention and demorage costs, Butler also said shippers could do more to help ease logistic bottlenecks. 
there are things that shippers have control over. They have control over whether they use boxes and chassis for storage of goods at their warehouses. That doesn't mean that they might not also be facing challenges that make that the most attractive solution for them, right? Even though it comes with detention charges. But that's a function of not having enough warehouse space or not having enough labor in those warehouses to keep that cargo moving. The marine terminal operators are complaining that people aren't picking their cargo up. And again, because this is not about pointing fingers, it may be very difficult in some cases for consignees to pick up their cargo. They're having the same trouble getting trucks, right, that that everybody else is. Um, They're faced with the same constraints on the rail lines that everybody else is. So my point is simply that everyone is facing, from their own different perspective, essentially the same problem, which is that we have way too much cargo for what the system is able to handle, and particularly the system once you reach the port and you're looking forward from there to the final destination. Chairman Daniel Maffey is one of five commissioners of the Federal Maritime Commission. He also spoke to Nick in his capacity as an independent commissioner and his views do not necessarily represent the views of the entire commission. But he said he had some sympathy for carriers and understood that they were not always in charge of everything that's going wrong in the supply chain. But he also said they could do better. There's no question that uh, infrastructure, not only in the United States, but all around the world, is at capacity. I mean... I wouldn't say that it's the infrastructure has failed or the system has failed or the carriers have failed, or certainly not the ports, particularly when we've, they've moved more cargo in the first six months of 2021 on average than in any other whole year. The amount of freight being moved, even if it's later than we want, even uh, less reliable than we want, but is, is way, way too large to say that there's a major system failure. What is going on, though, is the challenges of just incredible demand, and that is leading to congestion. In terms of the carriers, look, I know it's a difficult time for them, but uh, you know, the, the, because of the market conditions, you know, they are able to, 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 to you know, to... to for some first time in a long time, but make some real profits. And we are going to demand the highest standards from them, at least uh, ask for them and, and do what we can. And there's there are more they can do. The rates may be based on market conditions. And we, we realize that. And the Europeans realize that. Actually, we had a meeting recently with the Europeans and the Chinese, a previously scheduled meeting, but we were able to tr- exchange notes. And we found that um, while we're all getting complaints about uh, what we call alliances uh, the, under agreements in our law, but with their consortia in, in Europe, you know, same, same things, um, that, that we don't, we've looked, we will continue to look, but so far we have not seen any actionable evidence of collusion on price or trying to, uh, un, you know, to, to take away capacity or limit capacity in any way. In fact, quite the opposite, where we do see any evidence is that they've added capacity. You can't find a ship to you know, to, to put on the water now. So, you know, it's understandable that they would sort of say, well, look, you know, point to other people. And gosh, you know, in the U.S., uh, we also, it's not our agency, but we're working with other agencies. And, you know, we should be asking more of the rails. We should be asking more of the chassis providers, the truckers, the, 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 the even the warehouse providers, even the shippers to a certain extent. 
but that doesn't mean the carriers are off the hook. And, and where I have really focused is on detention and demurrage, and I do think they need to do a better job, new rule notwithstanding, uh, that uh, to try to comply and, and to have a good system for shippers that feel they were unfairly billed. Yeah. Some carriers have better than others. Some, it is, you know, really Byzantine to try to work through all of that. Uh, so th- that can be improved. But also these additional fees they're putting on, uh, congestion, surcharges. Even one of them has something they claim they don't have a congestion charge, but they have a value-added fee. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? Wrapping up the shipping container in, in plastic? Are they putting a, a bow on it? I mean, I, I make fun of it, but it, it is a little ridiculous. It, the, you look at something like the L.A. Long Beach slowdown, their congestion charge made sense. It was one port, and it was a, a you know limited kind of thing. We're talking about every port in the world. Yeah. I mean, th- so this should be part of the rate. Um, that's the most transparent thing. It's the most fair thing. Not some uh, opaque set of charges that may follow the letter of the law in terms of notice, etc. But but certainly, in my view, don't follow the spirit of the rules. And so we're looking at those. We did. Uh, we have launched an investigation on August second that continues and we continue to try to get as much information in the case of uh, that carrier that has a the value added charge. They have certainly not uh, given us a justification we're satisfied with. We'll continue to go back to them until uh, they either do or they, or they change that charge. And you know, it's not impossible that we would do some sort of a enforcement case, but largely uh, we, we just are asking the carriers to, to do better here. Accenture's Sarah Banks is hopeful that from all the anger and protestations, and conflict will emerge better working relations between carriers and shippers. I mean, the the carriers, especially over the last, I would say, month or so, have really had to respond at a level, I think, that's quite unprecedented to regulatory scrutiny or even moves from shipper groups, you know, forwarder groups that are very concerned about the impact of the control the carriers have had on their destiny, whether it be rates or just availability and just keeping supply chains moving. Uh, So I think it will continue. I think that the carriers themselves, I don't think are fully to blame on the San Pedro backlog and congestion. A carrier does not control that part of the, the supply chain. They're basically victims of it, right? But also going back to the shipper transparency, and I think there's some goodness coming out of the regulatory push. It just, when you put a spotlight on something, I think it it creates the need to look at it, creates the need to find a way forward and some change that has not existed for a long time. But I think if with the moves in the regulatory space, you will see you know, shippers potentially being more open to looking at minimum quantity commitments, maybe some of the contractual basis that they have today a bit differently, like Mm -hmm. committing not to annual MQCs, but doing something maybe at a more granular level. I think that the moves that uh, Maersk has made really over this last year around trying to come up with a more flexible contract basis is a move in that direction. And so I think the regulatory scrutiny is only going to enhance some of those collaborations between carriers and shippers, hopefully not increasing the adversarial relationship that's been there for a long time. Because one thing I think people forget is that, yes, there are unprecedented profits right now, but the carrier industry is one of heavy peaks and heavy valleys. And and it is trying to come up with more collaboration and cooperation, and I think technology will help us there, frankly, between shippers and the carriers to create a model that is more 
collaborative in nature and will help address the concerns the shippers have where they feel gouged or punished, uh, as well as the carriers, a balancing against the carrier's predominance of trying to more tightly control capacity or maybe say no when they should say yes. And so I think it's a really good time for the regulators to, to be placing this eye on it because I think we may finally have both parties interested in finding solutions. For his part, Vespucci Maritime's Lars Jensen has firm views both on when things might improve and why it is unlikely that more regulation will help improve supply and demand fundamentals in the short term. The first thing that's absolutely important to note is in the entire history of container shipping, ever since the first ones were shipped, we have never been in a sustained period where there is insufficient capacity. And that's where we are now. That's also why this is such a shock to the system of quite a lot of shippers, because we literally have never been here. If you're a shipper, you have been used to a situation where there was always enough capacity. If there wasn't, freight rates would go up $500 or $1,000, more ships would be put in, then there would be enough capacity. Right now, that's just not the case. We are literally in a situation where there's too much demand. And if you cannot increase capacity, which physically you cannot do right now. It's all deployed. So the only thing that you can do in such a market environment is reduce demand. And when you have to reduce demand, that comes down to priority. Who do you prioritize? Who do you leave behind? In 2021, this has been a priority based on normal free market economics. Whoever pays the most gets on board, at least on the marginal space. Sure, you have some large customers with contracts. They get on board too. There has then been a pretty large battle cry on part of some shippers and saying, well, we need uh, regulatory intervention here. And you could do that. I mean, you could have regulatory authorities come in and change the rules. It doesn't change the fact that there's not enough capacity. You can rearrange the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're still playing a zero-sum game. So if you make a regulatory approach to favor some shippers, those shippers will be happy but then you will have other shippers that are gonna be left behind. The other thing that then becomes important is when I look at the data over the last 20, 30 years, look at how supply chains have been constructed. They have been developed from the perspective that they should be efficient. And globally, we have been extremely good at making efficient supply chains. And an efficient supply chain is one that has a low cost. It is one that is as fast as possible, does not contain unnecessary inventory that is as tight as possible, not too many buffers, and normally that is fine. But that also means it's a supply chain that's not very robust. In an environment where there's always a lot of overcapacity, that works brilliantly. But there was not enough excess capacity to deal with a global pandemic, which means that they were not robust enough to deal with what we have now. And that becomes interesting going forward. Because you could look at this in two different ways. You can either say, we should have learned the lesson. Now we need to build in more robustness. But we should keep in mind, robustness is a nice word for overcapacity. So in the years where everything is fine, we don't have a pandemic, we don't have major disruptions, we're going to have a lot of idle ships. We're going to have a lot of empty container terminals. We'll have piles of empty containers, trucks that don't move anywhere. Who's willing to pay for that? Realistically, not a lot of people are going to be willing to pay for that. You can also look at it differently and say, we've had a period for 30 years 
where we didn't really have uh, much need for the buffer, we save a lot of money, low freight rates. Then once every 30 years, it becomes catastrophically expensive, but seen over the entire 31 year period, maybe it's still cheaper to just take it on the chin when the price is extremely high, because seen over three decades, this might actually still be more cost efficient, despite all the pain. Nobody has really gone down into their supply chains and, and done the full end-to-end -end calculation. My own take on this is we will get out from this pandemic-induced bottleneck. It will take quite a while. We're going to go way into 2022 before we can hope for a semblance of normality again. But life will return to normal. And what we will then see over the next, I would say, three to five years, eventually the lessons of this will be forgotten. Major supply chain shocks of the past have never impacted global trade in quite the same way as COVID, but they have always been forgotten quite quickly, as Lars points out. Time will tell if history repeats itself. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Forto, for supporting this episode. An additional shout to the Baltic Exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices. And a big thanks also to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon.